The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see you tonight. Most of you know that Common Ground uh, operates in this really beautiful way. We have for over 20 years now where we practice offering everything freely. It's been our practice, and it's a real joy. And of course, it happens only because people like yourselves have been really generous so that all the leaders, all the teachers can offer everything without a fee or even a suggested donation and without even bringing it up very much, this kind of the way that we operate. Usually we do it the last Sunday night of the month, just mention it to everybody. So we ask people to, when you come here, to practice receiving it as a free gift. And you know, when if you've been fortunate to get a real free gift without strings attached, then you know it's really nice, but it can be also a little awkward. We feel guilty, like, do I deserve this, or what's really going on here? What do they want? So we have to practice receiving it. We have to be awake. Oh, this is a free gift. This is happening because other people have given freely because they wanted to. And so this place is available in the way that it's available. And then if you feel inspired, if it will make you happy to give, then please give. And it works this way for the center. We Our budget's about a quarter of a million dollars a year. And this money comes in because people want to give. And evidently, hopefully, it makes them happy to give. If you give too much, it won't feel good. If you feel like, I don't have to give or I don't want to give, that stingy feeling won't feel good either. So you have to find a way that actually makes sense. And because everybody's situation is so different, we don't give suggested donations. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Some people give one gift a year. Some people give whenever they want. Some people give frequently whenever they're here. So it just depends on what makes sense in your life. But you can always check in with me if you have any questions. I see Tim's here, our program host, and Tom is here, and Brad and other leaders. So you can check in with them if you have any questions or with me afterward. And there's also should be a sheet of paper out by the donation bowl that has a little bit more information. And of course, you can go to our website and get more information there as well. So most of you know that we've been following this set of instructions the Buddha gave, mindfulness of breathing. The Pali phrase is anapanasati sutta. So the discourse on breathing in and breathing out. Mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. And so the Buddha, this was already a practice at the time of the Buddha, this mindfulness of the breath. But then the Buddha gave these 16 instructions to help people use breath not just to calm down, the body and mind down, but also to develop insight. So it's a really nice meditation strategy. I mean, there are many ways to meditate. Mindfulness of breathing is just one. But it's a nice, it's a really nice strategy because it balances what supports a deepening calm and eventually joy, ease, and then even more profound states of quiet So all those sort of things that we stereotypically think we want in meditation practice, which is true, it's really nice to have a deep state of peace or quiet come up every once in a while in our sits. But 
not only that, but the whole practice, the, the strategy or the instructions are designed to lead to insight so that even though we're developing more and more calm, peace in the mind, the mind is being directed in ways that it starts to see things about the nature of the mind that it hadn't noticed before. Basically that the internal processes are impersonal and impermanent, not worthy of grasping. And so a more profound happiness, peace, the peace of a calm mind, is one kind of happiness. The peace of the mind that doesn't grasp, doesn't react, that's an even more profound kind of happiness. So I mentioned uh, we put up some instructions, um, a shortened version of this discourse. So it just has the 16 steps. Like tonight, we just got through eight, a little less than eight steps. So there are a lot more. You can take a look at that. And then you can also, behind that, um, in the later pages, are a bunch of notes from other well-known contemporary teachers, how they interpret each of the Buddha's 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing. So if you go to the website, you look under teachings, which one is one of the main menu items. You look under resources, you'll see the link for the uh, document on mindfulness of breathing. And you can get that, and it will help you. It will be like a cheat sheet that you can use. And you know, when I'm guiding the meditation these last several weeks and probably for several more weeks, it's not necessarily how you practice at home because I'm working through part of the map and more and more more of the map, so you get to know the map. But when you're practicing at home, you may not move through the map. You may just stay with just trying to track the breath in, track the breath out with awareness. But as things settle more, you're having what we call a good sit, well then you might want to move through some of those steps to really notice the whole body as you're breathing in and out. Notice the calming happening as you're breathing in and out. Notice the joy Notice the ease. Notice the feeling tone of the mental formations. Notice the quieting of the mind. Noticing the whole space, all the activity of the mind. So, sort of, from the point of view of knowing, the mind is seen as a impersonal activity. And on and on from there. And you can just take a look at these instructions and then um, work, at the, work with them and then bring up questions if you have any. So I want to go back to the Four Noble Truths, which we've been talking about now for a couple of months. It, it's uh, really right to call this the main teaching model the Buddha used. You find it in all the different Buddhist traditions as one of the main maps the Buddha used to talk about the mind. It comes out of his first talk, and it's related to the Eightfold Path, which is where we're going. So it's four categories of liberating insights. It's called the Four Noble Truths, but they're really um, areas where you're going to have insight and it's somewhat sequential, or it is sequential. So I'm going to go through it and then I'm going to start talking about the fourth of these liberating insights tonight and maybe spend a couple more weeks before we finish this section up. So surprising for a lot of us when we get started for me, it was so reassuring. One of the things that caused a lot of confidence in the Buddhist teachings to arise was that he leads, he starts talking about our life, our mind, by acknowledging that there is 
dukkha, there is stress. There is this basic uneasiness in my heart. And it was so nice to, you know, as I began to investigate in the early 80s, this path, it was so nice to see someone who was saying something that was so obvious in my own my own life. Because mostly, culturally, we don't, it's not cool to talk about that. I mean, it's okay to complain about your life to your friends and, you know, in general. But it's not okay to say, you know, there is this fundamental uneasiness that seems to be there even when life is going really well. And, you know, what would your friend say if you said that? Oh. <laughs> you know, it's the Oscars tonight. <laughs> Want to come over, have a glass of wine, we'll see who gets best picture. You know, because we don't know what to do with that information. That that what we're counting on to make us happy is fundamentally limited. You know, like filling our life with watching the Oscars. Not, not that there's anything wrong, and we all know that we'll be still going through categories we don't care about by the time we get home. <laughs> but, um, but to start acknowledging in our life that even when things are going pretty well, the heart's a little uneasy. It's still anxious. It still wants to grasp. It still wants more of what's good. It still isn't released and free and happy. And to honestly acknowledge that, and especially to acknowledge it together in community, I think is really powerful. And to realize that 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 there's something there that we can learn. There's some teaching there in the fact that experience is limited. I mean, basically the teaching is, this is a dead end. Thinking you're going to find that full release, that deep happiness through the acquisition of experience, sense experiences, is the wrong way. It's not the way. So the Buddha says, start there. Start with that acknowledgement that experience is limited. Become peaceful with that. Like accepting, okay, One of the interesting things about taking the time to sit in a comfortable way is noticing how after a while it's not comfortable anymore. And it wouldn't matter if you walked into this room and everybody had their own little mat like you had in kindergarten, except bigger, and you could lie down and you had the pillow and you had the blanket, you'd still get uncomfortable after a while. I mean, you might fall asleep, but eventually you would be uncomfortable in that position, right? Just like we are when we're sitting just like we'd be if we were standing or walking or whatever it would be. We're not content to just be. We always need to fix it, control it, make it better, get rid of something. And this basic uneasiness is endemic to existence. It's not like special to me. It's just the way it is being a human being. So making peace with it means we don't make it go away we're not resisting it. We don't feel personally betrayed by it. We're actually learning to be interested in it. That's the key. Interested in stress, interested in the limited nature, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, that it's never enough. We have a nice meal, but we want more. We have a nice rest, but we want more. Or we have a nice rest and we're really ready to go, but we don't want to get out of bed. I mean, there's all these sort of resistances 
to the like not wanting to accept that experience is limited. So we make peace with that. And because we're no longer struggling with sense experience as much, we begin to, what comes online is the second area of liberating insight, which we call the second noble truth. There's a cause to stress, to suffering. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So there is a cause, meaning this is the insight where we're sitting and we're feeling a little anxious, but we know enough to just be with it, right? Because we've heard the instruction. So we're just feeling the end. We're not thinking about why I'm uneasy. So we're not on the level of content. Why, do I, why am I always so uneasy? That's more of a therapeutic level of practice. That's not what we're doing in mindfulness practice. There may be thinking, of course, but we're practicing coming into the body, into the direct immediateness of that uneasiness, energetic uneasiness. We're right there with it, unafraid, relaxed with it. And we begin to see that this thing gets constructed into a personal problem here. It isn't actually a personal problem until the mind makes it a personal problem. I don't like this uneasiness. See, the uneasiness in the heart is one thing, and the construction of a somebody, me, who really wants to be done with it, that's another thing. So that construction, just to give it a word, we'll call it attachment, or identifying with experience, taking experience personally. That's the beginning of the second area of liberating insight where we see there's a cause and it's always here in the mind and heart. Whenever you're stressed, whenever you're suffering. Now, it's so easy to say to points of that, well, yeah, but what about that person who stubbed their toe? Or even worse, you know, what about that person who's being oppressed, you know, or living in a war zone or is all alone? Are you saying that's happening there? Well, when we stub our toe, there's a sharp pain usually. And that sharp pain is just sensation. Intense maybe, but it's just sensation moving. Being known in the mind, of course. Your toe hurts. The mind feels a sensation. And then the real important question is, what is the mind going to do with those intense sensations vibrating there? I could construct this idea that I'm a klutz or that idiot left that thing on the ground. Right? I could begin to proliferate around it and I'm basically constructing a story. There's a me who's angry. There's a me who's embarrassed. There's a me who is tight. Now, do we have to do that? What happens when we stub our toe and we don't do that? What, what is that experience like? So this is the beginning of the insight in the second noble truth where we're noticing there's a cause. It's always this internal process we call attachment or taking desire personally or taking intention personally, whatever the intention in the mind is, taking it personally, being personally invested in what we're thinking. So it's not about thinking, it's personalizing the thought. Or even before thought, there's an intention. Personalizing that. So with as this these insights mature, the mind, the wisdom in the mind begins to understand attachment should be abandoned. Because just through patient 
observation of attachment, right? So we're thinking like being a student of attachment for weeks, months, years. It begins slowly to dawn on the mind that attachment never helps. It always seems like it helps. It always seems to make rational sense to be identified or attached, to be tight. But it actually doesn't make sense. It just puts the squeeze on the heart. That's what it does. It makes it feel personal. So you know how it is when uh, something happens, like you're driving in traffic and you think this person, you're pretty sure this person sees you, but they cut you off. And it feels really personal, like they were just being aggressive on purpose, just you know, acting out some power trip or acting out their rage or whatever it might be. And it really hurts. But we don't know whether they actually saw us. It could be they were just spaced out in that moment, which is not good, of course. But our attitude would be very different if we knew they were just spaced out. Oh, that guy's got to pay attention, you know. But we wouldn't be angry. We wouldn't feel like this sort of, especially, you know, if you have this um, attitude that I think mostly comes from testosterone where, you know, you're not, you don't feel like, sort of bumping chest, oh no, you, oh no, you won't, kind of feeling with that. And so, but if you know they're just spacing out, then you can have that sort of superiority saying, well, you idiot, but, you know, I'll give you a lot of leeway because I want to be safe. Or, if you knew that person was in the middle of this terrible crisis and someone was counting on them getting home and every second matters or getting to the hospital or whatever, you know, you'd even have a different attitude. So what our mind does with the insults in our life really matters. Now, the thing is, even if we take the most obnoxious possibility, like the person was on purpose trying to screw with us, you know, even that actually is impersonal. Like, what were the causes and conditions that led that mind to be that way in that moment? You know, it probably would bring up a lot of compassion that somebody is finding, thinking they're going to find some satisfaction by being a jerk in that way. That is truly tragic. You know, to, to be inhabiting that mind, I wouldn't want to inhabit that mind. Why get angry at that person? They're really deserving. I mean, clearly take care of yourself and do what you have to do in terms of driving, but hating that person is completely unnecessary. So what I'm the point I'm making is, as you study attachment, taking things personally more and more, it will just dawn on the mind, it never helps. It's never functional to take things personally. We don't need to take things personally to be involved in life to respond, to care. It's like people hear this, you know, not taking things personally, they think, well, then I won't do anything. But how do you know that that's true? You actually have to check it out. You have to practice not taking things personally and see whether you just sort of lie around like a a slug and never do anything. You know, because there's other motivating forces than greed and aversion, like love. Love can get us up off the couch and into the world to respond, to do even love for ourselves or compassion. Wanting to do something beautiful like the joy 
itself can be a motivating force. We do it because it's delightful and it isn't harming anybody. Right? That can be a motivating force. That's not attachment. We're doing something beautiful because we can. And when we can't, that will be okay too. It's like a kid playing in the snow. You know, if there's a lot of snow, they'll play in the snow. If there's not a lot of snow, they'll play with something else. They're not attached to the snow. They're attached to, I mean, not that you'd say it this way, but they just want to delight in the world as it is. And they'll find a way with the conditions to express joy. Or if there's a lot of difficulty around them, to express compassion. So we have compassion as a motivating force and love, basic friendliness, basic goodwill of the heart. We have joy as a motivating force. And even a more pure kind of interest. Like just, it's kind of like joy. It's a delighting in learning. So we look, we pay attention. We're balanced. The attention is balanced and clear because we care about understanding. We want to understand how it is, the way it is. So the second set of liberating truths, we're understanding that whenever the heart feels bound up, it's because the mind, the heart is doing something right now. It's attaching. So we notice the attachment. So ultimately, attachment is a very relevant mindfulness or meditation object. If we can be aware of the attachment without being seduced by it and then proliferating around why I am attached, why I should be attached, or judging ourselves for being attached, that won't help. But just being aware of it in a patient, interested way, and eventually attachment ceases. Now, we've all had this experience tens of thousands of times where we've been attached, and then that attachment goes away. It ceases. It ends. It should be abandoned like the mind recognizes now because there's more wisdom. This isn't helpful. I'm there with it because... Trying to get rid of it is just another attachment. So I just have to be present with the attachment, with the identification, with the feeling that this is personal and seeing as best I can the lack of function. It's not helpful. It should be abandoned. And then eventually it goes away and that's a a moment to realize. You want to realize that attachment ceased. Like we could you know, have some desire to do something tonight when we go home. And we could notice that, but I don't have to do it. So we can see that there's the desire for it and the attachment, oh yeah, that would be, and then the cessation of it. Wanting to get even, you know, your partner doesn't do something that she or he was supposed to do. And we don't act on it. We let the attachment, the identification with that self-righteousness, that feeling, we let it cease. It was there, it's there, it's there, maybe for hours, but then it ceases. Now, there a very powerful thing happens between this and the next insight, which is the beginning of the third noble truth. There is cessation. So, there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. There is a cause, which is attachment. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. There is an experience of cessation. Now, this is a little different. It's kind of uh, a deepening, widening 
of seeing attachment end in the mind. Because every time, and like I said, we've had this experience tens of thousands of times. I don't know if we've been aware of very many of those tens of thousands of times. But when we are clearly aware of attachment ceasing, it starts to change things in the mind. And the mind begins to generalize or deepen its understanding of that experience when attachment ends. And we call that generalization or integration of that understanding the realization of cessation. The mind is beginning to realize what the mind is when there's no greed, anger, or delusion there. No craving. So it's not just about I'm no longer attached to saying something to my wife about her toothbrush being left out on the on the bathroom sink. Or I'm no longer attached to, you know, uh, needing to go someplace warm in the wintertime. You know, the more I think about, I'm not trying to spoil anybody's trip to the Bahamas, but the more I think about, you know, getting in an airplane and flying and spending that money only to have to come back. (laughs) It's like, no. (laughs) So, I can get, and then I, I see the attachment cease. It's like too much of a bother, you know. And in just the stuff around global warming, it's like my heart puts it down. It picks it up, puts it down. Picks up the identification, the attachment, all oh, that would be, and puts it down. The more I see that it can be put down, my mind starts to generalize. Well, maybe it all can be put down. No matter what identifi- what, what the mind is identified with. What the mind is clinging to, attached to, wanting, fearing, maybe all of that squeeze can be released. And we start having, intuiting this experience of a full release, the mind that isn't grasping after anything. Because normally what happens when our attachment ceases, we just get involved in another attachment very quickly. So we don't really experience the mind, heart, without any attachment any craving, any fear, any agitation at all. Agitation due to greed, anger, and delusion. So this third noble truth is this deepening, maturing of that insight of attachment being put down. Where it realizes everything can be put down. You know you're starting to understand this insight when it feels like a free fall. Because you know what gives our life ground? Like, I'm here. It's attachment. That's what gives the experience of being a human being solidity. Otherwise, and you actually have this experience in practice where it feels like uh, everything's happening on its own. And there's no weight or... Because you're not personal. Like, even when you're stretching your arm out, I'll just give a simple example, or you're taking a step, What makes that feel solid is the idea that I'm lifting my leg, I'm moving my leg forward, I'm putting it down. There's a real identification with the physical process of walking. That's attachment. It's very subtle. I mean, it's not like being attached to having ice cream when you go home, but it's still there. We're attached to the sensations as being mine. Same with our thoughts. There's a thought, I'm giving a talk now, but there's a subtle attachment that that's my thought. 
So when that attachment, all that clinging, however subtle, ceases in a moment, there's like a, everything is unlike our usual experience. Like something that's very heavy has been held for a long time and it's put down. We did so long we didn't even know we were carrying the weight and it goes down. Now, of course, the more we have this experience, the more fluid it is where the mind is beginning to more deeply, more regularly intuit the possibility of non-grasping. Being in the world, having responsibilities, having relationships, but moments, more moments of, of freedom from grasping, let's say, or understanding the reality of non-grasping. So the three insights here is there is the experience of cessation, a mind free of grasping, this experience should be realized, meaning fully realized, fully understood for what it is. It has been fully realized. And here's the interesting thing. It's only when we really start to deepen this experience of freedom, it's an experience of freedom, a taste of freedom, that we start to clearly understand what the path is. I mean, it always seems like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm undertaking this path of awakening, I'm studying the teachings of the Buddha, I'm practicing being more mindful in life and developing my ethical life and, you know, all these sorts of things. But the truth is, to a large degree, it's just a self-centered project for all of us almost all of the time. That's okay. Because we can't conceive of what we're doing in an impersonal way or as a natural process. It just naturally seems like a personal project. There's me who wants to be free, so I'm doing these practices in order to become free. Right? So I undertake it, the practice or this path of practice, with this personal point of view, from this personal point of view. But the more we have this insight, the more we really understand the path. It's like, it's a natural process, awakening, Life is a natural process, so living a life that leads to awakening is also a natural process, and it's impersonal. So how can this impersonal process unfold without me personally doing something? Well, how does suffering happen without me personally doing something? Because suffering isn't personal, but it happens. And non-suffering isn't personal, and it can happen too. And part of that transition from living our impersonal life in a way that always leads to suffering, stress, as opposed to living our life in a way that leads to the release of that, it has to do with this natural integration, first of some information, like we're learning to pay attention in a particular way. So this is the Eightfold Path. We begin to understand that natural way to set in motion awakening, how it's a natural process, but it needs to be set in motion lawfully. And that's what the Eightfold Path is. It's like, how does this arise? And it's this circular engine. So there are three parts to the Eightfold Path. I'll talk about it in simplistic terms. And then over the next three weeks, we'll talk about it in more detail. 
So it always begins, in, in the way the Buddha describes spiritual life, it always begins with the most subtle thing, which is view or understanding. Understanding leads to how we act in the world. What I do, how I relate to you, how I talk to you, how I take care of surviving in this world. So how all of that action in the world comes out of my understanding or the view that I have, like what's my values or what I think is important. So we have view leading to actions. Actions, how we are in the world, really affects how our mind is. You know, I'm worrying about this. I'm trying to make this happen. I want this relationship to work. Well, when we sit and meditate, for example, that's what's going to be moving through our mind is all that stuff related to the our actions in the world which then, of course, reinforces our view. It's like our view of what's important, our values, we think drive our action, but our actions and the way our thinking goes then reinforce our views. So we get locked in. So the way we intervene, the way we uh, switch this up is there's an intervention initially at right view. And that's what's happening right now. We have these teachings. It's like uh, in the Buddhist tradition, it's considered very hard to wake up without a teacher. Like in our tradition, we consider the Buddha our teacher, even though he lived 2,500 years ago. We're basically drawing on his teachings. So he, without a teacher, came to understand his mind in a really deep way. And he also had the skill to articulate what happened to him. So now we're using that articulation, which has been written down now, of course, and we have it. And he's saying, okay, here's the intervention. So now we're just, for whatever reason, have the good fortune to hear this intervention. The first intervention that begins to change things is everything's lawful. This is the teaching on karma. Everything's lawful. And it really... That lawful unfolding, right? It's a lawful unfolding. There are many different causes and conditions feeding this lawful unfolding. And one of the most potent ingredients for how things are unfolding for you, for each of us, is the particular attitude I'm bringing as I know or experience this unfolding. It's a sort of a surprising thing, you know, like... However, this moment got to be the way that it is, there's a very powerful input to how this is for you right now. And that is how your mind right now in the moment is understanding all of these past causes and conditions coming together right now. So we have this moment, all these things from the past, like our genetic code, our upbringing, what it, you know, the cultural effect that we've, you know, programming we've gotten, all that's coming together and there's a mind that is knowing it. And this mind that's knowing it right now is hearing something. It's hearing that it's all lawful, it's unfolding lawfully, and if you observe this lawful unfolding, it will naturally dawn on the mind what's skillful and unskillful about this unfolding. And when you see what's unskillful, you can't help. The mind that sees, like, being really stingy hurts. 
or being really aggressive hurts. Not even hurts the other person, but it hurts your own heart when you're grasping, when you're struggling, when you're controlling. So the more you observe that, without you personally wanting to change yourself, you will change. Because the mind then later that's knowing what's happening is a mind that has recognized that controlling is stressful. Grasping is stressful. Being stingy is stressful. Hating is stressful. Being greedy is stressful. That mind knows that. And so it naturally moves away without me having to do it, without any sort of sense of a somebody having to do it. So the way the Buddha outlined this is that we have this intervention. We get some information. It's lawful. There's skillful and unskillful ways to relate. I'll give you, and then the Buddha gives us some more information. He says, when you're greedy, when you're aversive or fearful, that will always cause stress. When you're generous and um, appreciating what you have, content with what you have, when you're good-hearted, when you're committed to non-harming, those values, that attitude with your present moment experience will always lead to a more light, easeful, better, uh, deeper sense of well-being. And he says, this is lawful. It's not about you being good. It's sort of a basic truth because greed, anger, and delusion always involve wrong view. Whenever you're greedy, it's always involving a very strong sense of separation. Self, me, who wants that? Me, who's afraid of that? But the quality, the value of renunciation and generosity, the value of good-heartedness or metta, loving-kindness, the value of non-harming, that doesn't require wrong view, a a sense of separation, self-centered drama, right? In fact, it undermines it. So these motivations that we learn by paying attention change everything. So the way it, it's the Eightfold Path is set up, and I'll just end here, and we'll, like I said, we'll come back to it, but we'll, some time for discussion, is this loop. So we have right view, so we're getting some teachings, everything's lawful, greed, anger, and delusion don't work, non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion works, leads to happiness. And so we get this information, now we start to pay attention with that information, it gets confirmed, in the mind, and it starts having an effect. Once the mind sees that greed doesn't work, even if it's just the beginning, and the next time you're in a situation that triggers greed, the mind will be different. Because now it's the mind that has seen that greed doesn't work. So the it will be less seduced by greed. And if you keep seeing greed doesn't work, eventually the mind will be very powerfully clear greed is not the way to happiness. Same with fear, same with anger, same with denial and distraction and all the other ways that we try to manage our life. So then that begins to change our actions. So we go from right view to right action in the world. So now our actions in the world involve uh, 
are, are being informed by some of what we're learning about what is a wholesome value and what is an unwholesome value. So we start practicing restraint. I've learned through paying attention that hate doesn't work. So now my wife is making me really angry or my boss is making me really angry, but I'm not going to act it out because I trust what life has taught me. So I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to run away and hide because that's better than acting out my anger. And so we bring awareness to our relationships and we start to experiment with what we've learned from paying attention to the mind out in the world of action. And things begin to work better in life. Things settle down. Then we bring that mindfulness to the mind itself. So you can think of the world of, an, of relationships as one ecology, you know, that external ecology, and then the mind is an internal ecology. So in the same way we want to purify or harmonize our external world of relationships, we want to harmonize the internal world of our mind, our thinking mind. And in much the same way, we basically take the values that we're learning from paying attention and we apply them to the mind. Okay, there's a little greed, like wanting that pain in the back to go away. That's a little aversion or a little greed. Oh, that never works. Remember remember what you've learned? That never works. So I'm just going to let it be. So we start all of the just little nudgy things in the mind, we start purifying, teasing them out because we know it's not the way to happiness. And then the same thing, we bring awareness to view. We deepen the view by uh, really understanding more deeply the impersonal nature, the changing nature, the process nature. And then that reinforces action, purifying the mind, purifying view. So there's this loop. We purify our view initially with some outside information we get from the teachings. Then we purify our actions. We purify our mind. We purify our view deeper understanding, less likely to take things personally. That changes how we are in the world when we're not taking things personally. Changes how we are with our thinking mind. Further purifies the view. So this is the Eightfold Path. It's a natural, impersonal process. All it depends upon is a new input. The new input are the teachings that you get when you study the teachings of the Buddha or anybody who deeply understands the nature of the mind or how impersonal everything is. Now, impersonal does not mean that it isn't relevant. It just means that taking it personally doesn't lead to anything but suffering. So, a lot of times when people hear it's impersonal, they immediately go to some sort of philosophical, metaphysical speculation. Like They try to conceptualize what that means, that it's impersonal. But when we use the phrase, it's impersonal, we're giving, you, we're giving ourselves a very specific instruction. We're using that as a view, a lens, through which to understand our immediate direct experience. Try it out. It's supposed to be <clears throat> practical, so we're pragmatic. Relate to experience as, it, as if it's natural and impersonal, including your thinking, including the movement of 
<coughs> Excuse me. So we're seeing all activity of the body and mind, internal, external, as we observe other people. We just see it as a natural unfolding of causes and conditions, but no center to any of it. Internally, no center. Externally, no center. And the question isn't whether this is philosophically or metaphysically true. The question, and this is the great skill of the Buddha, pragmatically, is it skillful to view experience in this way? Do you become a happier and better person when you view things this way, you live this way? You see? So it's really important that you don't take these teachings as some philosophical truth that you then believe in. No. The point is you use it. And you see, that changes everything. Taking this information, and then practice viewing your life through that information. Living your life through that information. And then just seeing how gradually everything begins to change. Because now there's a mind that's seeing and viewing and experiencing through this point of view, not through our self-centered point of view, which is going to be the default because of cultural conditioning. So I'll leave it here. We'll pick it up again next week, but there's about 10 minutes. It'd be nice if you have any questions or just comments from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group, how these uh, practices, the Noble Truth practices, have worked in your life. What comes to mind? Yeah. <clears throat> about um, the difference between, discerning the difference between desire and attachment. Sometimes it can be really hard to tell is this just a desire that I have that I want to pursue and like, you know, like I'm cold, I put on a sweater or something like that, or is this like an attachment? So how do you skillfully go about like pursuing a desire, whether it be like finding a job or like any goal in a skillful way without getting caught up in attachment? Yeah, it's a really good question. Emily, is that right? Yeah, really good question, Emily. Did everybody hear a question? about the difference between attachment and desire. One definition that I like a lot from Ajahn Sumedho is that attachment or clinging is desire with identification. So desire, in, in the Buddhist text, they have a word for desire that's neutral, not bad. And it's like, I think a, a good phrase for it is life energy. When there's a living being, there's this movement. You could call it desire or life energy to do, to put on a sweater, to eat food, to mate, to be around other beings because we're a social being or to be alone because we're not a social being. So those forces are natural forces. You can't be alive without desire. <clears throat> the question is, how is the mind understanding desire? Or what is the mind, the conditioned mind, the habit mind, what is it taking desire to be? So like you gave the example of putting a sweater on when you're cold. So there's no harm, there's no suffering in putting a sweater on when you're cold. But it isn't hard to start to whip up a self-centered drama like, I gotta move. 
you know, nobody should have to live in Minnesota in the wintertime. Or, you know, you, there can be real wars in homes about what the temperature should be. <laughs> During the <clears throat> three-month retreat at IMS, I've done a number of those longer retreats at this uh, well-known training center out of Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society. And there were, there have been, now they really have strict rules, because for so many years there were real wars about whether the window should be open a crack or closed, right? I mean, nobody could touch the thermostat, but there was always like people wanting fresh air, people feeling cold. Well, Mary's been on a number of those retreats, you know, and now they're like, it's like everything's closed always. Did you know that? Mary was out at the part of the three month. Were you there for the home or just six weeks uh, retreat? But I mean, like a lot of hatred and a lot of, you know, conspiracy theory and all kinds of stuff can arise in people's minds around this. So that's the suffering part. That's because there is a natural desire to be warmer. And of course, the other half of the people have a natural desire to be cooler. So because we're just, we have different physical, you know, bodies. But when the mind is allowing itself to create a whole drama about how it's not fair or how I'm going to win this argument or whatever, that's the suffering. So when we're cold, that may be unpleasant. So there is going to be pain in life, ordinary pain, unavoidable pain. Suffering is when it's unnecessary because of the mental constructions we create an idea that it's not fair. We create an idea I'm going to get even. We create an idea that it's never going to, they're not, I'm never going to let them touch me. But all of those ideas are heavy and stressful in the mind. And that's when it becomes suffering. Thanks for that good question, Emily. Other thoughts that come to mind or comments from your practice? Yeah, say your name again. I'm Kyle. Well, that's a good question. How do you fall in love without attachment? Or how do you fall in love with non-attachment? Well, I think it can happen. Um, but, you know, well, what's more likely to happen is attachment, seeing the dysfunction of it, moments of non-attachment and attachment, seeing the uselessness of it, moments of non-attachment and then attachment in that process. And if you stay together long enough, with the person, then uh, if it's really going to last, it has to at least move in the direction of non-attachment because attachment is really hard to live with. The other question that's related to this is how do you have kids with non-attachment, right? And of course, being really vigilant with your three-week-year-old is very appropriate. And of course, you shouldn't hate yourself for being attached, but there's a way to be really vigilant and responsive and to really appreciate the joys when they're there in the raising of the child without attachment. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Some of my teachers, when I was practicing in Burma, would often say that, and they, they actually got a lot of young women, you know, in their teens to come to the monasteries and do practice. And they were often considered to be the best practitioners, partly because it's a really patriarchal society. And so they've, you've got these sort of 
men, you know, who are the sayadas, the teachers, the monks, teaching these young women, and the women do what they're told, and they get great insight. They, and they used to say all the time, you shouldn't be, get married and have children until you have deep insight, until you have some of the earlier stages of awakening, which is like deep practice. Because it's not easy being a parent when you don't have, you know, you're not enlightened, basically. Because it's so easy to get attached and take everything, take everything personally. The success of your child, the fail, failures of your child, in the same way we do with our partners. And, uh, but what really helps is to see that attachment always hurts. Expectations always hurt. Thinking we own, thinking you can count on this person. Now, that doesn't mean that people are not dependable, but they're only as dependable as they are. And there are a lot of causes and conditions that can't be understood. Even the person themselves they don't know the forces that are driving their life. There may be some hidden trauma that hasn't surfaced in a way that the person can be clear of. And there you are happily together for years, and all of a sudden, maybe because things are going well, and there's a lot of safety, some old pain comes up, and that person becomes a different person for a while. And maybe you can't be with that person. And maybe that person actually ends up ultimately being healthier, but now they've already undermined or the relationship has already been undermined. So there are all these forces at play that we are not in control of in our relationships. So I think one of the really healthy things we can do in our intimate relationships is we can practice being really honest. Like, I'm committed to being with you and I'm committing to not forgetting that I don't know how this is going to unfold. So I'm not going to idealistically say to you that we should be together forever. That's a really nice story. It's a really nice vision. I hope that turns out that way, but I don't know what's right. How do we know we should be together forever? We don't. I mean, it was a very interesting conversation with my wife when, you know, we've been married now for 21 years, 22 years almost, and uh, we lived together for a couple years before then. And, but, you know, we were, we had these very honest conversations, like acknowledging to each other, we don't know. And it keeps it alive. We still don't know, but it feels really good being together. And that kind of honesty, I think, really helps. But not everybody wants to go there. You know, some people really feel, they don't realize, but they feel like they need that story that this is forever. And that's the only way it can be. Um, and that actually may make the relationship more brittle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. And we need to end here. It's 8.30. So we'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciating the silence as we take a breath or two. Appreciating the goodness and the common sense, practicality of all these teachings. And feeling inspired to integrate, 
to reflect upon and to let these teachings get set in motion inside our heart and mind. To become part of the causes and conditions for real peace and happiness in the world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.